This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased and honored to have the former New York State Attorney General and author of the book, The Luckiest Guy in the World, Robert Abrams. Welcome. David, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's a big honor. It is a big honor for, for me to have you on Miranda Warnings. Uh, I want to talk about your time as Attorney General. It takes up uh, a large part of your book, but I want to mention on a personal note, uh, that as a law student at Albany Law School, I worked for two years at the New York State Attorney General's office from 86 to 87 during your uh, tenure. I, I clerked in the Department of uh, Bureau of Consumer Frauds and Protection, and it was a wonderful experience. Wow, that's that's music to my ears. You know, I, I take a tremendous amount of pride in what we try to do uh, during the 15 years I was Attorney General. And uh, Nothing is more exciting to me than when people come over to me and they say, you know, Bob, I worked in your office. And I say, sure, I remember who you are. Most of the time I do remember. Right. And um, uh, and then they say that, you know, it was the most, most exciting time in my professional career. And, and this is from people who have done a lot. They did a lot before. They did a lot after um, because they feel that, uh, you know, there was a lot of energy in the office. There was a tremendous agenda with important priorities for the public interest, uh, you know, people intern from law school or, you know, right. so, so you're, you're part of a list over the years of, of people who have, have told me that, and uh, it warms my heart. Really wonderful attorneys I got to work with in the Bureau of Consumer Frauds. Uh, it was very, you know, for a law student, very exciting work. Um, I always felt like we were on the, we're in the white hats. Uh, at the time, in the you know mid '80s, there was the Lemon Law. Uh, was was uh, the Attorney General was, was uh, working on now? It's you know not a big deal, but back then, the Lemon Law was a big deal. And you, I want to talk about your time as Attorney General. Certainly, you transformed the office of Attorney General. There's a clear dividing line um, of the Attorney General's role from before Robert Abrams to uh, after Robert Abrams. Talk a little bit about your approach and, and, and how you really changed the Attorney General's position. Well, David, first of all, you know, the office is a fantastic office. Uh, it's, it's not always understood. You know, people hear the term Attorney General and right. they don't quite understand what they do. And a lot of people feel that it's the district attorney, the criminal prosecutor. There's some criminal prosecution, but there's not 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 a lot in the New York Attorney General's office, although I try to increase that. And there are 50 attorneys general in the country and every state has a different form of attorney general with different priorities. So what's exciting is that the office is malleable. You know, it can be shaped. It can be molded depending upon the priorities of the holder of that office at any point in time. And the history of the office is one of being defensive to represent the sovereign. You know, it started with the King of England colonizing the new world and the King was represented by a lawyer. Then came the revolution and there was no longer a King. We had a democratic form of government. So there was a governor who ruled the state and that the state was the sovereign. And the governor appointed a lawyer as the king appointed the lawyer originally. So now the governor appointed a lawyer. Then that began to be constitutional conventions in the various colonies and states as, as they went along. And, and, the, and the attorney general was shifted, was no longer an appointed person. More and more 
the attorney general was the, was made into an elected official based upon the constitution. And in the bulk of the states, that's the way the attorney general gets there. There are a handful of, 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 of states, they're mostly small states, Wyoming, New Hampshire, Alaska, Hawaii, who have an appointed attorney general. Well, there's one pretty large state, New Jersey, who has an appointed attorney general. And then there are two outlying states, the state of Maine, where the attorney general is selected by the legislature, and Tennessee, where the Supreme Court selects the attorney general for a fixed term of eight years. Right. So there is this role of the attorney general that's historical, where it defends the office. But then it began after a couple of hundred years of functioning in the 60s and the 70s, some attorneys general around the country began to be affirmative. They began to launch some of their own investigations, uh, civil rights issues, consumer issues, environmental issues, and New York was one of them. And my predecessor, Louis Lefkowitz, began some of those offices, a civil rights bureau, uh, uh, a, a consumer bureau, uh, an environmental bureau, and they launched some of those cases. And then I came along after Lefkowitz was in office for 22 years. I was the first Democrat elected attorney general in 40 years. And I came in as an activist. And what did that mean? I wanted to maximize the office for the people of the state. How, how can I take this office of attorney general and shape it in a way that it's going to do important work for the people of the state? So let's go out there and be affirmative. Let's be aggressive. Let's launch investigations for consumers. Let's, in, let's really strongly enforce the antitrust laws. You know, you say antitrust. That, to, to an average person, what does that mean? But it's got very practical implications. If the attorney general can enforce any trust laws, people can buy things cheaper in the marketplace. Consumers can save hundreds of millions of dollars in even a given year if an attorney general or at the, at the national level or the state level enforces those laws to make sure there are no uh, monopolies, no conspiracies to try to contain the opportunity of choice you know, to maximize choice and to maximize the lowest possible price. So I came to office saying, I want to do this in the office. I want to surround myself with people who share my vision. And that's another important part, to have recruitment in the office on the merits. Even though I got elected to the office, I didn't want the patronage process to really prevail. I wanted to have everybody uh, evaluated on the merits. I never inquired into people's political affiliation. We had no partisan politics in any way. Build an office with people, women and men, and again, from all parts of the state, and to increase uh, the diversity in the office who shared my vision of that office. And then, you know, we put together an agenda. And I was very lucky. Uh, we, we did a lot of important things. And it so happened, let me just finally say, David, I took office at a time uh, when Ronald Reagan was the president. Right. And he was a man of his word in the sense that he said he believed in laissez-faire government. He, he believed that government sh should be off the, get the government off the back of the business community, get the government off the back of the people. And so he put the consumer watchdogs to sleep, the environmental watchdogs to sleep. People couldn't count on the federal government being involved in these important issues. So I was the attorney general of a large state, and I said, let's use our resources, and I try to be collaborative. I reached out to other attorneys general, even though they were Republicans or Democrats, or they were from small states or large states or the West or the South. We worked together 
uh, to do similar things. And so it was an exciting time. And, um, you know, I, I think we changed the office forever. I think you did too. And, you know, you came in and uh, started in 1979. Uh, obviously the good, good part of the eighties was the Reagan administration, where, as you said, they were somewhat laissez-faire on a lot of these very important issues. And you, on behalf of the state of New York, stepped up on issues regarding civil rights, environmental protection, uh, consumer protection, antitrust, as you said, and you worked with other attorney generals. And I think as a result of the work that uh, was done in the early 80s, attorneys general, not only in New York, but around uh, the country are now more influential. Um, you had a just a fascinating er, uh, start. You were a, a young elected representative. You were elected to the state assembly at the age of 27. By the age of 31 in 1970, you were elected Bronx Borough president. Uh, you were uh, a reformer. You didn't come up necessarily through the political machine. Tell us a little bit about how someone like yourself didn't come up through the political machine. How did you get involved and how did you rise to such levels so quickly? Well, I, when, I, when I speak to some young people, I say, you know, uh, life is serendipitous. You can't totally plan your life. You don't know how you're going to meet your mate. You don't know exactly what's going to happen in your own profession. If you're a lawyer, you know, what are you going to specialize in? Some people have their heart set on specializing in a certain area, but other people wind up for their entire life and career being a certain kind of a lawyer because they happen to be assigned and affirmed one kind of a case as their first or second case and, their rest, and they spent the rest of their life pursuing that. So, you know, life is serendipitous. So you don't know. And, and certainly that was the case with me. I never dreamt that I would spend a large part of my life being an elected official, you know, running for public office. Uh, uh, so, and, and it really started in an interesting way. I went to Columbia College and I took a government course and uh, there was a very prominent professor who gave that course, David B. Truman. He ultimately became the dean and he became the vice provost of, of Columbia University. So he gave an assignment that everybody in the class had to do a paper on his congressional district. But Columbia was all male at that point. That's why I use the word his. And, um, and so you, you had to write a paper. What are the geographic boundaries of the district? Um, who lives in that district? What's the racial, ethnic, religious makeup of that district? What are the economics of that district? What, the, what, what are the, the topographical uh, elements of the district? And he said at the end, I want you to interview your own member of Congress, congressman, and include that in your paper. So my congressman happened to be a, a man named Charlie Buckley. He was the boss of the Bronx, a 30-year veteran in the House, the chairman of the major, major committee, the Public Works Committee. Um, and so he's a pretty powerful guy. So I, I, I try to find his office in the district. I figure, let me go to a regional office and tell him about this assignment and try to have an uh, opportunity to interview the congressman. And I, lo and behold, I find there's no office. There's no local office of Congressman Buckley. So I call his office in Washington. I leave a message the first time, the second time, the third time, no one calls me back. And I had to submit the paper without interviewing my congressman. So I, I proceeded, I graduated Columbia College. I went to law school at NYU. And while I'm at NYU, Francis Adams, a former police commissioner, has a gathering in his home of, of the NYU law students and says, look, 
you're all going to become lawyers, but it's not enough just to be a lawyer. You should be an activist. You should be involved in politics. You should try to be engaged in reform. You should try to improve our, our, your community and our overall society. You get involved in politics. And he said, look, we're involved in a big struggle now. We want to reform the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was the major party in New York City. And it was being led, this effort at reform was being led by two octogenarians, two 80-year-old types, Eleanor Roosevelt and Herbert Le Lehman, legends, legendary names. And they were trying to make the Democratic Party more responsive, allow new blood to come in, younger people, uh, to not have patronage abuses, no-show jobs, people would get on the payroll who were loyalists and they wouldn't show up for work, whether it was Albany or Washington or City Hall, uh, people would get nominations for public office or for judgeships, and they didn't perhaps have the merits and the and the ability or the inclination to do the right thing. So these, so they said, we want to reform the party, and you should get involved. And lo and behold, a few days after, a couple of weeks after that reception, I got a phone call from the Bronx Pelham Reform Democratic Club in my own local district, in my neighborhood of Pelham Parkway in the Bronx, and they said, you know, we heard you went to that reception. We'd love to get you involved in a campaign. And I said, look, it was a great reception. Thanks a lot for calling. I'm glad you followed up. But, you know, maybe one day, but I can't do it now. I'm pretty busy. I got a lot on my plate. And they said, no, no, you should really get involved. You know, we, we have a lot of races going on. I said, look, no, I appreciate the call, but I can't do it now. And they said, no, we're running, you know, for party office. We're challenging public officials. And we have a challenge to the congressman. We're challenging Charlie Buckley. I said, what did you say? So we, we, we were running a primary against Charlie Buckley. I said, oh, that SOB. I said, you got me. I mean, it, it triggered four, three, four years earlier what happened with my term paper. And that's how I got in politics. I went and worked to the candidate who was running against Charlie Buckley and it all emanated from there. So who could have thought that that would have happened in my life. You can't plan. So the best thing Charlie Buckley did was not take your call because that inspired you to get involved and, and go on to become a member of the legislature and Bronxboro president and attorney general. Um, I want to talk about one of the one of the big issues that you had as attorney general uh, involving uh, your work as uh, the special uh, prosecutor in the Tawana Brawley case in the, the, the late 80s. Um, tell us a little bit about that case. It was a horrific case at the time, uh, very, uh, you know, newsworthy. Uh, there was a claim that uh, a 15-year-old Black girl was sexually assaulted. Um, the claim, there was also a claim that uh, one of the assaultants uh, uh, included a police officer in Dutchess County, very high profile they asked for a special prosecutor. The governor uh, at the time, Mario Cuomo, appointed you as a special prosecutor. Tell us a little bit about um, how difficult that case was. It was extremely difficult. It was very contra uh, controversial. And uh, you're absolutely right, David. The, the governor appointed me as a special prosecutor. We stepped in and these were very serious charges. Uh, a teenage young uh, African-American girl in the Hudson Valley said that she was abducted. Uh, she was held against her will in the woods by a group of white men, one of whom was, uh, was attached to law enforcement. And she was abused and racially uh, and sexually assaulted over a four day period. And uh, 
uh, it's horrible. I read about it originally in the newspaper and I, uh, not knowing that in a, in a couple of months I'd be called upon to be the special prosecutor. My wife and I said, oh my God, can you imagine this? Uh, are we living in the South and Jim Crow? However, as we pursued the investigation of this case and impaneled the grand jury, and as that grand jury heard dozens of witnesses and received hundreds of exhibits and had thousands of pages of testimony, you know, it was discovered that, that this young woman um, did not tell the truth, that this, she, she got into trouble coming home late that night. She feared uh, the wrath of, uh, uh, of her stepfather and uh, concocted this story. And, um, uh, and it really raises an important question because today we're in the midst of, you know, a major trial going on right now in Minneapolis uh, uh, as a result of wrongdoing by, by uh, the criminal justice system, by members of the criminal justice system, a police officer. Um, and and it's, it's a serious issue then, and it's a serious issue today. And it's got to be dealt with. But it turned out that in this case, it was not a truthful assertion. And as a result of a very thorough, months-long investigation, we pieced together uh, the overwhelming evidence that convinced the grand jury. And I think most of the public, uh, because editorial support all across the state, all across the country, was very st strong saying that uh, the special prosecutor's office handled that case very professionally, independently, and gave overwhelming evidence to indicate that unfortunately this was, uh, um, in this case, was not a truthful uh, story about uh, what was alleged originally. Right, of course, the, the allegations were horrific. Turned out that it was not the case as uh, after months. I mean, this was, uh, you've given a little synopsis, but this went on for months. And, you know, there were several representatives of uh, this person, including Al Sharpton, who were outspoken uh, about the case and actually made accusations against particular people, uh, particular uh, people in law enforcement that were completely uh, untrue. Um, and so there was a real uh, effect on the community and on the people. And then it turned out you know, after months of investigation and resources that it was, you know, you know, admittedly a teenager um, who, who made it, who, you know, made up the story. Um, but I want to get to the next part with, with Al Sharpton, you know, you later ran in, I think was like a, such a tremendous democratic primary for us Senate. You ran for us Senate in 1992, Al D'Amato, is the incumbent. And then we have a primary that includes Geraldine Ferraro, former vice presidential candidate, Liz Holtzman, uh, at one point, the, the youngest congresswoman ever elected to Congress, and then Al Sharpton, who, be, who became you know a household name as a result of this Brawley case, and Robert Abrams, New York State Attorney General. What a primary between these four giants slugging it out. Tell me what that primary was like. Well, it was a slugfest, you're right, David. I mean, it was a very, very difficult primary. Um, and I eked out a victory. I won on primary night. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro was very upset uh, about the result and, 
Um, and unfortunately, you know, usually at the end of a primary, uh, no matter how difficult the fight and the battle was and what was said and what was done during the course of the primary, people come together and they support the winner of the primary and they support the, the nominee of the party. Um, and that didn't happen um, until with Geraldine Ferraro until about uh, three, four, five days before the general election. So that, that hurt. Uh, as well as other things, it wasn't the best run campaign uh, ever, and it wasn't uh, my best effort uh, on the campaign trail over the course of uh, 28 years in, in public life and different campaigns. And so uh, I wound up in a very close race on election night against Amato, an incumbent who overwhelmed me with money and dollars and uh, saturation of the airwaves. And uh, I lost, uh, it was like a 1% race with over 6 million votes cast. Uh, it was um, a handful of votes that really was the margin of difference. But, you know, I'm a positivist. You, you got to move forward. Right. Uh, you put it behind you and, and you go forward and, and uh, try to live your life uh, still trying to be productive to, to overall society. And that's what I try. Oh, to do. my gosh. Well, of course you have. And, and I bring up the race because it was just uh, such a historical uh, a race with with so many uh, great names in politics. Um, now, again, you started out as a reformer, 60s, 70s, 80s. You you were involved in in reforming, you know, not only the party, but the the uh, attorney general's office. Let me ask you, is, is there an elected leader in New York today that you would call, you know, a Bob Abrams type political leader? Is there someone that you have you feel like embodies what you had well, well, first of all, I had my own role models coming into my career. I mean, uh, you know, I admired uh, Bobby Kennedy. Mm. Uh, I, I saw him. I supported him when he ran for president uh, in 1968, in the Democratic primary. And then, of course, he was tragically gunned down um, after winning the, the California primary. Um, I saw him as, as a man who was capable of change in the midst of his life. You know, he, he, he was never so sensitive to civil rights issues. And, you know, he, he shifted and he moved and he became a passionate voice. You know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, he was so eloquent that night, trying to keep calm in the rest of the community, showing sensitivity. I, I, I admired a man like Mo Udall. He was a congressman from Arizona. Uh, from a very distinguished family that gave public service. His brother Stewart was uh, in the cabinet, Secretary of the Interior. And Mo was a, was a man of intellect and of wit. He never took himself seriously. He actually ran for president in 1980 or 1976. Um, uh, you know, so there were people who I, my, President Kennedy, I, I, I was in law school when, when President Kennedy got elected. You know, a handsome man, eloquent, uh, filled with all kinds of uh, quotes that would inspire uh, young people to participate in the, in the growth and the building of our country. Um, so there were a lot of people, uh, you know, who, who really inspired me. And I must say that today, you know, I, I, I think given what I have done in the office of attorney general during my tenure, I think there is, you know, the current holder of that office. She's a trailblazer, first time who a person who a woman who got elected to statewide uh, to to the office of attorney general first african american uh, woman elected uh, to statewide office in new york and she's maintained the great tradition of that office keeping it a a, a trailblazer 
uh, a leader among attorneys general around the country. During the Trump era, we saw the curtailment of people's rights, you know, a cutback in environmental enforcement, a cutback in consumer enforcement and civil rights protection. And uh, Tish James went ahead and brought lawsuits and was successful in fighting for immigrants and newcomers to, to our country and to our shores. And so, um, you know, she's shown a lot of guts, a lot of independence, and uh, and she's also shown it in terms of standing up and launching this important investigation, you know, against the governor. Very serious charges have been swirling around against him. So, you know, past people, current people, uh, and I think that's one of the messages, David, that people, there's a lot that can make people cynical today. Want to say that, that government politics can't be trusted uh, but but you, you, you can't have that as your as your attitude and your fundamental belief system. Yeah, you, you have to ha- believe that the cup is f- is half full and not half empty. You got to be a positivist, an optimist, and uh, you can't drop out. You got to roll up your sleeves and, and and go to work. You know, Margaret Mead, the great uh, sociologist, uh, anthropologist, just said that. Um, uh, it, 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 it's got to be understood that it's a small handful of people who can really make a revolution and make important fundamental change. That's the way it always was and always will be. And so, uh, you know, the word, uh, my, my word to young people today is you can't drop out, got to roll up your sleeves, get involved, be on the front lines, run for the school board, work on the staff of a not-for-profit, um, seek public office or party office yourself because we need your idealism, we need your energy, we need your commitment to make this a better world. You know, in your book, you're you're obviously a, a man of the Bronx. Uh, there's a you know a common thread throughout uh, your book and your politics uh, about the Bronx. Um, do you have any thoughts on the current New York City mayoral race? Um, I don't know if you have any 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 favorites or any comments on on how the candidates are doing. No, I, I haven't, uh, you know, made a made a, a choice yet. I'm I'm like everybody else, I guess, in New York, you know, t- uh, taking a look at a, at a large field and see who makes sense. It's obviously very important to have a good leader of New York to be able to manage this city well, and especially coming off of a pandemic. Uh, New York City is in deep trouble. I mean, you just go up and down the streets of Manhattan or into the neighborhoods of other boroughs, and you see vacant stores. Um, you see restaurants that have collapsed, individual storekeepers who have not been able to, to make it. Um, so we need very strong and important uh, leadership in New York. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful that, we'll, that a strong candidate will emerge and that uh, uh, will we'll, we'll rejuvenate. You know, New York is special. No matter how bleak it looks at any moment in time, you know, it's, it's the most uh, special place on the face of the earth. Never before have so many different kinds of people come to live in one place at one time. And, uh, you know, obviously the Broadway theater is going to come back. Uh, Our sports teams are going to attract large crowds again. Uh, The economy is going to be rejuvenated. Um, uh, And and New York, you know, in the future will will come alive again. But but it's got some serious problems right now. You mentioned sports teams. I know you're a big Yankee fan. And I know that uh, baseball t- is is in a couple of chapters of your book. It's a common theme. When you were Bronx Borough President uh, in 1970, Yankees were thinking about leaving the Bronx, and you had a role in keeping 
them in the Bronx. Tell us about how you kept the Yankees in the Bronx. They were thinking about going to New Jersey. They were. I mean, so so here I was. I, I ran in a primary against the party bosses, against the machine for the Democratic nomination for Bronx Borough president, and and I won. So and I knew that uh, that I'd be able. I, I was going to get elected because the Bronx is overwhelmingly Democratic. So after the primary, I knew I was in a few weeks going to be elected the borough president uh, of the Bronx. But I kept reading increasingly in the newspaper that the Yankees were making threats and noises that they might leave just and we had the backdrop of years before the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants leaving and the football Giants were threatening to leave and I said to myself oh my god I'm going to become the borough president of the Bronx and the Yankees this this world-class institution is going to leave I can't have that be my legacy so so I after I won the nomination I called up Michael Burke and he was the president of the Yankees. And I said, Mr. Burke, my name is Robert Abrams. I hope you don't feel this is audacious of me, but I just won the primary and I'm going to be elected the borough president because the Bronx is overwhelmingly democratic. And I just want to know, I've been reading the papers. Is it true that the Yankees are thinking about leaving the Bronx? He said, yeah, yeah, we got a lot of problems here and the mayor's not taking care of us. I said, can, can, can I come down to see you and talk about this? And he said, sure. So I met with him in his office and I heard all the grievances. You know, the stadium was deteriorating. People were coming to the stadium. They weren't feeling secure. They needed more police protection. They needed better road access. They needed parking spaces. And he was telling me that the mayor, you know, he complained, but nothing was ever done. I said, look, Mr. Burke, please, please don't do anything precipitous. I'm going to be your ally. I'm going to fight for you. And, you know, and I went down to see the mayor uh, after the election. Actually, it was interesting because I, I was a Maverick Democrat and the party had nominated Mario Procaccino, who I thought was a Neanderthal, was out of step with the values of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I and a lot of other reformed Democrats endorsed uh, John Lindsay, who was running for re-election on the Liberal Party line. He had just lost the Republican primary. Uh, to actually an Albany state legislator, John Markey. And um, and, and, and so uh, I, I endorsed Lindsay and Lindsay won. So after the election, I went down to the mayor and I said, Mr. Mayor, I'm here to talk about the Yankees. And, uh, you know, and I laid out all the reasons why I, we had to do everything possible to keep the Yankees. They were an economic generator. There was a source of prestige to the city, to the Bronx, it would be devastating to the Bronx bad for the city if it left. It was a symbol that was very important. Uh, and I said, you know, Mr. Mayor, you owe me one also, by the way, coincidentally, you know, I endorsed you, you owe me one. And I made this whole case. And uh, by the end of the meeting, uh, he said, look, uh, we've been talking about that here, obviously. And what you say makes a lot of sense. And I, and I, and I put a proposition on the table. I said, so look, Mr. Mayor, the, the city gave a commitment to Queens by building a new stadium for the ball, for the new team that was coming in the Mets. They put $24 million in the budget uh, to build a stadium. And I think the Bronx deserves no less. Put $24 million in the budget uh, so that we can rehabilitate Yankee Stadium and do what's necessary to give confidence to the Yankees that there's a future here as their home and so that they'll stay and not move. And um, by the end of the conversation, the meeting, he shook my hand. He said, you got it. What you say makes a lot of sense. We've been considering that. But you've now, you know, really put it in proper perspective and you got it. 
and that's what happened. Uh, uh, negotiations followed after that, and uh, the stadium was rehabilitated, um, and um, the Yankees stayed. And obviously, they're still the most extraordinary, not only baseball franchise, but probably any sports franchise in the world. Of course. The Bronx Bombers, where else would they be? Right? Right, right. As a kid from the Bronx, you know, growing, and, and I was so lucky. I was the day, I was growing up when, in the day of Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and, and, and uh, you know, great pitches, Whitey Ford, uh, extraordinary. And, and, and it actually, it, it, was, it was a big debate in New York City, you know, three unbelievable center fielders for the three local teams, Willie Mays for the New York Giants, Duke Snyder for the Brooklyn Dodgers and Mickey Mantle for the New York Yankees. And the big debate in candy store corners all throughout the city, who was the best, best player? Who was the best center fielder? Uh, and uh, obviously passions ran strong, strong for each of those teams. And, um, you know, I was just lucky during the, that Yankee dynasty for, for great players, Allie Reynolds and Whitey Ford and Eddie Lopat, and, you know, Johnny Mize, uh, all these uh, wonderful, wonderful players who um, are part of the Yankee legacy. Well, for many people, that may be your greatest service, making sure the Yankees stay uh, in the Bronx. Uh, Robert Abrams, it's been wonderful speaking with you uh, about your time as New York State Attorney General, about your book, The Luckiest Guy in the World. Um, a fascinating book for anybody that is interested in New York politics. Uh, you take us through all of it during your more than three decades in politics. Um, I can't thank you enough for being with us here on Miranda Warnings and for your service to New York State. Thanks, David. Thanks. That's yeah, great. Now we've got one more feature, music, book, or movie. What, what, what are you watching or listening to or reading these days? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, for the last few years, I've been so invested in the book that, uh, uh, and actually it gave me uh, during the pandemic, what was the time necessary to um, uh, to invest uh, in, in getting it ready for publication and all. Um, so I, I've missed uh, going to the local movie theater, but, you know, I'm ready to go back and, um, you know, read other books and um, and go to the theater and go to the Broadway theater and go to the concerts again. Uh, you know, make sure that uh, uh, that all of those wonderful things that New York has to offer um, is available to me. A friend of mine just bought season tickets for the Nets and, um, and I've been going to see a number of their games and obviously the Knicks are showing some life this year as well. And so uh, it's good to get back into you know, the TV, movie, sports, and, you know, uh, and, and book world again. Well, great. Robert Abrams, wonderful to have you. The Luckiest Guy in the World is his book, and I recommend it to all of you. Thank you, Robert Abrams. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.